this is a panel that's been told they're not allowed to review the merits of harm reduction or to consider the merits of harm reduction while they're determining the socioeconomic impacts of supervised consumption. So you put together a panel and you tell them to review a topic, but not to review any of the merits of that topic. What do you think you're gonna get as a final result? Hello and welcome to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt, uh, co-host along with my good friend and co-host Jeremy Appel and our editor, producer and everything in between, Mo Cranker. Fellas, how's it going today? Good. I, I'm a good friend now. Right? I had to promote you back up. I felt I listened to the podcast last week and I felt horrible for forgetting to mention that we like each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I was appalled. Yeah, you should be. Permission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mo, I'm good too. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I, I love this like first five seconds of the show where we get to hear you say thank you. And then that's the end of it. And we move on. So thank you for joining us, Mo today. Appreciate it. Um, how's your week been, fellas? Good. I'm back oh, to work. Good, good talk. Guys. Well, I'm back to work. So I'm just are you just trying to rub that into Jeremy's face right now? That's yeah. pretty, that's garbage. Imagine yeah, not mean, having a job. <laughs> well, I, I am keeping busy. Um, I've got a couple pieces in the pipeline. I, laying some pipe? Yeah, I'm laying some pipe. Laying, uh, some, laying some written word pipe? Yeah, definitely. Sweet. I would say that. All right, well, let's get past this garbage nonsense bantering between us and get to our show this week so we got a pretty important episode we think uh this week to bring to you guys um off it's it's going to get a little political but we want to focus uh on something a little bit um we never get political no no never never um, are you sure are you sure the listeners are ready for us to get political yeah, I don't know. It might, it might even get opinionated here, so be careful. All right. So anyway, let's get ourselves to the show this week. If we're going to make any serious waves with the crisis of dangerous drug addiction, we are going to have to change how we as a society view it. Addiction knows no demographic. It knows nothing about bank accounts or status or class. It exists all around us, and it can and does happen to anyone. From alcohol and caffeine to opioids and illicit street drugs, drug use is commonplace in our society, and if we want to ensure the health and safety of each other and ourselves, we must lift the stigmas attached to addiction. The Forgotten Corner is pleased to welcome Corey Ranger to the show this week. Corey is a registered nurse who is, who is currently a project manager and clinical lead working on safe supply initiatives in Victoria, and a longtime advocate for those struggling with addiction. For those in the Forgotten Corner, you may have come across his name while he was a clinical lead for HIV Community Link in Medicine Hat, and he continues to be a member and contributing writer for Change the Face of Addiction, an Alberta-based not-for-profit advocacy and awareness group. Over the course of the next hour or so, Corey will help us dive into the not nearly talked about enough topic of drug use, where the stigmas come from, and why they're harmful why the war on drugs is a decades-long failure, and most especially, how the approach of the current Alberta government has increased the risk factors and put lives in danger. We hope you enjoy what we think is a truly important episode and what will no doubt be a learning experience for us and our listeners. Corey, welcome to the show, my friend. 
What an introduction. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you, you made it. Well, you almost made it. Not yeah, nearly well, you know, enough. Really by the good. time we edit it, it's going to sound like I said that in one take perfect. So it's all good. That was pretty slick. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you. So you're our first out of Alberta guest at this point, but you do have some Alberta ties. And when we bring people onto this show, we always make them tell our listeners about themselves so that they know who they're listening to. And uh, we want to do that with uh, you as well. And, and so we're going to sit back and let you chat for a bit. I know you were born and raised in BC. We've talked about this, but it, you eventually ended up in Alberta. So tell us your life story a little bit and uh, what got you into nursing, what got you into uh, addiction advocacy, etc. Your turn. Wow. Well, where to start really? I got into nursing kind of in a bit of a serendipitous start. I uh, left high school and went right into pre-law in Nova Scotia. And then I dropped out after a year because I decided I did not want to be a lawyer. So Corey's back in Vancouver Island in Nanaimo and working at a Tim Hortons uh, and meets his wife and moves in with her after knowing her for only two weeks. And things are very chaotic. And then the time came where it just was no longer uh, really a great time to be working at Tim Hortons. So I decided to do what lots of young people do uh, back in the early, late 2000s, I think late 2000s, went and worked on the rigs and uh, put myself through, through nursing school. Uh, so I moved to Alberta just with like $200 in my truck. I did not know how the rigs worked back then. Like I had a phone call with them and they were like, you're hired. And I went and got all my tickets and drug tested and all of that stuff. And they told me like, you're hired and the office is in Red Deer. So I drove to Red Deer. And when I came there, I was like, hey, Corey, I'm, I'm ready to work. And they were like, yeah, but we don't have a rig for you. And I had no idea what any of that meant. Um, so I slept in my truck for a while and things were looking pretty dire. And a buddy of mine told me that he had a friend in Brooks. So I went to Brooks, Alberta and slept in someone's basement suite until they got bed bugs. And then I slept in my truck again and I worked on the service rigs, made enough money to bring my wife over to Alberta and to move into my own place. And then the next September I was working, I was going to nursing school. Now, were you in nursing school in Alberta then? Yeah, I went to Medicine at College. I was an LPN before I was an RN, so I went to the Brooks campus first, and then I went to the Medicine Hat campus. Funny enough, I later on, I ended up being an instructor for the nursing program at Medicine Hat College, so I uh, spent a lot of time around the Medicine Hat College. <laughs> so, so why specifically nursing when you did pick it? You know what? It was a complete fluke. I um, went to an open house at the college in Brooks, and I wanted to find out what to do. And um, I ran into one of the nursing instructors and she was like, you should try nursing. I was like, sold. So I applied and um, they told me that they were full. And then two weeks before class started, they said there was a cancellation and that I could go on if I, I could, I could go in if I wanted to. And the rest is history. It was a, it was a big sh kind of shot in the dark and it ended up being something that I absolutely love. It was the best best lucky chance that I could have taken. What was it about nursing that sold you on it? It just turned out that I really liked helping people out and I enjoyed 
early in my nursing career, I really enjoyed the clinical aspect of things. I wanted to work in operating rooms and, you know, be putting IVs in people and, you know, saving lives, all that kind of fun stuff. It wasn't until I was in my RN school that I realized I really liked community nursing and uh, working with people who are experiencing homelessness and uh, mental health and substance use related issues. And then, yeah, I just kind of naturally gravitated into that kind of role, which there wasn't a whole lot of jobs for that type of work in southeastern Alberta. Still isn't a ton of jobs in that kind of line of work. And so I went to Edmonton and I worked in the inner city for an organization called Streetworks. And I ran their bloodborne pathogens program with people who are HIV positive and living on the street. Then I went to Calgary and I worked on the harm reduction team and at the sexually transmitted infection clinic. And then I went back to Brooks and started the HIV program in Brooks. And then the naloxone project in Medicine Hat in 2015 taught for a little while at the college and then came back to work on supervised consumption services. When you, we're going to talk a lot about stigmas and such today. When you got into nursing and you started to find interest in this particular field, the community nursing aspect, did you have any personal stigmas or ideas about addiction that maybe once you got into it, it changed for you or were you always understanding of there's no. more to it than you're a bad person because you do drugs. I was very ignorant, like going into post-secondary. I, I had a lot of assumptions about people who use drugs. I had a lot of, you know, preconceived notions about things. Uh, and most of nursing school and, and the earlier parts of my career uh, was spent challenging all of those um, stereotypes and, and stigmas. It's a, it's a bit of a, a process that's uncomfortable for some people to, to have to look back and, and really break down some of those um, constructs that you've created. But um, it's really rewarding in the end, too. I think that we have a, a lot of people these days who, who are uncomfortable with, with reflecting on their selves, reflecting on privilege, and, and that discomfort comes out in really ugly ways. What helped change it? Was it like just simply, you know, learning the actual figures and stats and these kinds of things? Or did you get a chance to, you know, humanize some of these people as you got into it? And, and like, what, what sort of tipped you and realize, made you realize like, hey, there's a lot more to this than, than what my preconceived notions were? It was exposure, really. Like I, when I was in nursing school, um, our community health project, everybody gets assigned a different population for, their, for the semester to work with. And my group was assigned um, to the, the homeless population in Medicine Hat. And like uh, right out of the gate, when, when, we were, when I was named to that group, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna like this. And then the very first day, uh, it was my job to sit at, at the intake for the shelter and I got to meet everybody and talk to them. And I had all of these really great conversations with people. And it was almost right then and there that I was like, oh, I have got to change the way that I think about things. Part of the reason why you left and went back to BC is sort of has to do with some of the government decisions or changes, I think, right? Because the funding for what you were doing sort of dried up and went away. And we want to talk about a lot about supervised consumption sites and such today. While you were here, 
you were part of the group that was trying to put together a supervised consumption site in Medicine Hat, correct? Yes, that is correct. Can you just talk about that process a little bit, what it was like in Medicine Hat? Um, because I know, well, I know for a fact that there was quite a bit of pushback on the entire thing. And um, do you feel sort of like you missed out or like it, it's incomplete what, what, what your time here? Oh, I mean, that's, um, I, I think about it quite often. It's a, it's a service that's really needed here. The, the need continues to exist in Medicine Hat. Um, there's, you know, um, I just saw on, on social media that there was another person who passed away from overdose in just Medicine the other Hat day, yeah. just the other day. And, and you know what, these are, our, these are our community members. These are people's mothers or children, brothers, sisters, and this is a life-saving service and every major municipality should have one. Um, unfortunately, there is a ton of stigma that exists still around supervised consumption services, around people who use drugs. There's a ton of um, myths and misinformation and a lot of fear around what these services may bring. Um, and a lot of that fear is, is, unfortunately, it's misplaced, but it's really deeply entrenched in a lot of people's mindsets, right? And, and it brings up a very large amount of emotional reactions when you talk to people about it. And so there was just a whole confluence of factors that really didn't make it work out the way that it should have. And, and it's really unfortunate. So yeah, it's something that I'm definitely... I've spent some time dwelling on, but I still think that um, the service is needed and that the fight doesn't stop, right? There still needs to be a push for these services in areas like Medicine Hat. People still need equitable opportunities to be kept alive and kept safe and supported. And there's a lot of other really great reasons to support a supervised consumption service. There was a study that just came out two days ago, three days ago, about the fact that supervised consumption services also save healthcare spending. Um, and that was one of the biggest arguments against supervised consumption services all across Alberta. That's true. Was, was what about my taxpayer dollars? Right? Well, and that, right. And that's the thing is you can, it doesn't really matter what angle you want to look at this. Even if somebody has this poor view of, of drug use and they think people are, they're bad people are not worth it or whatever. Well, then if it's about, if you want to make it about money, it's pretty expensive to have people dying on the street, having people, you know, contracting disease and these kinds of things. Uh, it was the study you're talking about is Dr. Jess uh, Jennifer Jackson from the University of Calgary. Um, one of the statistics, the, the, the main statistic was that it had in Alberta, the healthcare system had saved $2.3 million over a, the course of a three year period. And, uh, what, that worked out to more than $1,600 uh, saved in the system per uh, managed overdose at a supervised consumption site. So like, again, if you don't give a shit about these people's lives and all that is is money, you still can't, you still can't uh, make an argument against these things. And so um, I wanted to ask you then, if, if that's the case, I don't think any of us think that this is going to, that study is going to change Alberta government's mind on supervised consumption site. So, so what is like, what do you think their uh, mindset is towards this? And if it, if it isn't about money and it isn't about saving lives, what is it about for these guys? 
Well, I mean, like, let's just like put it up right out there first and foremost. Even having to put a price tag on overdoses managed and live saved is bullshit to begin with. It's sad that we have yeah. to try to resort to these types of arguments. It's sad that we have to try different angles in order to win decision makers over to, to get things moving forward the way that they should be. And I, I also will acknowledge that you're right. This study will likely not have the impact that it should. We're not going to see a massive retraction in the SCS review report. Right. Right. They're not going to be like, oops, science said we were wrong because this really isn't a government that cares much about science to begin with. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's what, what's really became apparent uh, recently is that there is more to the decision not to support these services than fiscal conservatism. There's, there's ideology right? There's just the belief that this isn't a worthwhile initiative. This isn't something that we need to be investing in. There's still all of those moralizing arguments that come with addiction and mental health where people will say, you know, naloxone enables drug use. Right, right, right. right. People right. being I'll, I'll associate people Minister Lawan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll backpedal a little bit and not say people, the actual associate minister of mental health and addiction. Right. Will go not ahead person. and say, naloxone enables high-risk drug use so yeah, imagine that like imagine thinking that that like there's this way that you could reverse it if you're all if you're in the middle of dying from it so that's why you do it like this is it's, it's not it this isn't flatliners like people yeah, aren't doing this right, on purpose right, they're right. not like nobody out, out there is using drugs with the intention that they they want to end up overdosing from it they're in a really precarious situation. The drug market is extremely volatile right now. Yeah. All of the COVID precautions that closed borders, that restricted people's movements, that isolated people and quarantined them, that all puts people who use drugs at even greater risk mm -hmm. uh, because the, the drugs that they're buying on the street now, um, they're being buffed with different additives so that they can continue to meet the supply and demand need. Uh, we're seeing higher concentrations of fentanyl, um, again, Associate Minister Luan tweeted out that he was really concerned that there was car fentanyl being found in Edmonton. Right. Um, only only weeks after he had said that there was no evidence that the drug market, the drug supply was getting worse. So the risk has never been higher for people. Um, and, and unfortunately in Alberta, uh, the reporting is quite ineffective. Like we, we just received the first quarter reporting for overdose. Uh, which is January through March. We just got that a week ago. So everybody on the streets is reporting that there's a surge in overdoses happening in May and June, but you're not going to see that quantified or, or reported probably until September. And so that completely impairs your ability to respond, right? That that SCS review that they did, it seemed to me that a lot of it was really based on the NIMBYism aspect of all this, right? Like catering to the not in my backyard folks. That because SCS review was like not even founded in any scientific method. Well, they didn't even look at harm reduction, right? Like, so it was, this yeah. is what I mean. It wasn't- They weren't about, allowed to. Right, yeah. it wasn't about whether it saved lives or what it did for drug users. It was about what effect it has on, like, 
the business or the people around it kind of thing. That was always a really big issue in Medicine Hat, whether, whether people were hiding behind it or not, they would say, I really want these folks to have the help that they need. I just don't want it in my backyard. I don't want to be next door to it. And so, A, do you think that those people are actually believing that, that they, they want the help, they just don't want to look at it? Do you, and what do you say, what do we say to people uh, that feel that, that to try to sort of change their mind? Because those are the ones I think that it doesn't matter how many statistics you give them. They don't want the problem concentrated next door to their business or home, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a really great activist named uh, Garth Mullins, and he uh, is is known for saying, when your city has no supervised consumption site, uh, it's full of unsupervised consumption sites. So these services, they're implemented where the biggest need already exists. They're implemented where overdoses are highest, where rates of drug use is highest, where people spend their time, um, because you can't just build it out in the middle of nowhere and expect people who don't have a place to sleep at, right? Like, then you would just, then you would actually be wasting that, that taxpayer money because nobody would use it, right? You have to implement the services where the emerging trends are happening. Um, and so like to, to many of those people, I would say it's already happening in your backyard, right? It's mm-hmm. already, it, it, but it might actually be happening in your backyard. But if you support a supervised consumption service, it'll at least be indoors, right? And, and people will be safer. There's all kinds of studies out there that have shown like there is decrease in needle paraphernalia, that there is decrease right. in public drug use. That sure seems like the opposite of what we hear, though, because uh, Lethbridge, for example, you get a lot of reporting. You hear, at least when you read media stories, there's always somebody that wants to talk to you about the added needle debris, the issues with these things, and the uptick in crime and all of these things. But again, like, where are, are they just chair? Are they are they cherry picking? Are they do they are they just ignoring the actual? No, I mean, we, we are still in an emerging drug crisis. And so, like, the, the presence of the supervised consumption service in Lethbridge didn't create people who were using drugs, not by any stretch of the, of the imagination. That rate was already growing, and the service was implemented. You can't conflate the two variables and say right. one caused the other, um, because we know, like, there's, there's nothing but positive studies out there that show consumption sites don't have this quote unquote honeypot effect. Like people aren't going to see a consumption site and be like, well, I guess I'm going to try shooting up today. That's not how the services work. Now there is also the increased perception when a consumption site goes in, right? Like as soon as those sites go in, then people's eyes are wide open. And I grew up in Nanaimo and I went to school in like a very inner inner city French immersion school. uh, And we had needle debris all over our school all the time. There was never a supervised consumption service to the point where uh, on recess, if you as a student found one, you would report it to the duty master and get like your name put into a draw at the end of the month. Like, so these are services are reflective of what's already starting to emerge in those cities. They're not a cause and effect relationship though. Now you you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about um, additives 
in order to meet supply and demand. Would you say maybe that like they're always talking, let's the, the police or whatever are always talking about getting drugs off the streets and things like this, this war on drugs. And every time they, they act like every time they get a big shipment of something off the streets that they've made some sort of headway or that they've helped somebody out, even though there's always drugs coming up from behind. Is do you think like the war on drugs and the way that it's fought has anything to do with where we are today as far as what drugs are out there and what what uh how dangerous the supply might be yeah i mean like there, there's beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what's happened the criminalization of people who use drugs um has created more harms especially disproportionately harming people of color and other marginalized populations it's it's been a, a tool of racism for as long as it started um, some of the first um, drug laws in Canada uh, were started in order to control the movements and of, of indigenous people, right? And um, Canada's alcohol prohibition only lasted for a very short time, but its alcohol prohibition for people who are indigenous lasted for a considerable amount of time. People don't know that. Um, there, there's many uh, deep roots of racism in the in the drug war. And what we know is that uh, there's this thing called the Iron Law of Prohibition, which essentially means the harder the enforcement, the harder the drug. So the more that the DEA and the U.S. cracks down on drugs being imported from Mexico, uh, the more that they saw the rise of methamphetamines being cooked in America. Um, and we see that across the board for drugs, the more we crack down on opioids. For example, when, when they uh, removed oxycodone and they changed the formulary of oxycodone, we had a supply and demand issue, and that supply de demand issue was met with fentanyl coming into Western Canada and, and then across the whole country. And of course, uh, media, I think, plays a significant role in shaping people's perceptions of addicts and harm reduction strategies. How would you recommend that people in the media go about reporting on these issues in a sensitive way well i'm gonna be an asshole and say first thing i would do is avoid labels like addicts one of the things that we do all the time um, when we talk to people who especially people who do messaging about these types of issues um, is to learn about anti-oppressive practices and one of the cornerstones of anti-oppressive practices is person first language um, and you know what person first language goes beyond people who use drugs uh, it goes to, you know, in nursing, there was a long time where people would say the diabetic in room 203. And now it's taught early in nursing school, but that's not how we affix labels to people that you remind them first that they're a human, right? The person with diabetes, because they have so many more facets to their identity than just their diagnosis. And it's, you know, especially from a media perspective, there's a really common trend to use shorter form language, right? Like person first language can feel clunky. Like you have, you, you say person who uses drugs, but that, you know, when you're on a word count on your column, that might be frustrating for you to have to deal with that. But it's really imperative because media has so much power and so much influence when it comes to the way people perceive uh, addiction and mental health. And those little things, stock images is a big thing too. 
you see every time there's a goddamn article about substance use, it's the same picture of two needles in a puddle on the corner of East right. Hastings. And it's like, fuck, like get something else. Get something that's not, you know, going to perpetuate the myth that every person who uses drugs uses needles and throws them around carelessly. Because that's not true. There are so many people who use drugs who do so in a responsible way. And quite often the people who don't discard their needles in a safe place do so because they didn't have any other option because they are further and further oppressed by a system and we get mad at them for not being able to get out of it, uh, which just creates more internalized stigma for them. So sorry for going off on a rant there, but you no, know. that was great. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, um, you know, because <laughs> that's I, uh, what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, you're you're talking to a few journalists here, so it's at the very least good for us to know how to use anti-oppressive language in our work when possible. Uh, what, is drug user a stigmatizing term? Well, anything that, that anything that creates that that label, right? So yeah. just like person first, it literally means put person first. They are a person who uses drugs, right. and then abbreviate PWUD, and then just use PWUD for the rest of your article. I'll, uh, I'll even check in the mail. Yeah, that's right. I'll <laughs> even credit Mo on this one right now. I wrote about uh, addiction and safe or supervised consumption a few months ago now, and he went through and I think I actually wrote the word addict once or twice. And he was like, you're not, you're not saying that. So he softened me up. And I mean, it's, it, it's, that's a hard one. Language is often hard. I find sometimes even my brain is ahead of my, my mouth, you know, and the word comes out. This is why podcasts or being live on air is like an absolute fucking nightmare for me because when you sit down and write, you can really craft the words you want. But when you're just talking in general conversation, it takes a lot of constant, a lot of concentration to get out of old habits, right? And and the stigmas have been fed to all of us. You entered nursing school with them. I, I I'm sure I had them. Even even while I was using recreational drugs in my like youth, I was still holding this stigma of like the bad drugs versus the good drugs and these kinds of things now about safe again back to supervised consumption for a second is it fair to say that this is a a band-aid it's a necessary band-aid that we need right now in order to save lives but this is a, a way for us to manage people that are using dangerous street drugs and help them not die if we wanted to actually stop people from having to have that problem, would we not, is there not a different way, like such as some of the initiatives you're doing in Victoria right now with safe supply? Like, I mean, if we really wanted people to not die from drugs, we would give them drugs that don't kill them, would we not? Yeah, I mean, um, through Change the Face of Addiction, we were trying to, to advocate for um, our our provincial health officer to, to create, um, you know, some, some impetus to provide a safe supply of drugs to people, uh, especially during, during the pandemic, right? We're in, we're actually in a dual healthcare crisis, right? Uh, in BC, overdose was declared a public health emergency, but it wasn't in, in Alberta. Um, but we are still in a dual healthcare crisis. Uh, and so the risk has never been higher for people who use substances. Uh, and if the problem is a toxic supply, 
then the only pragmatic solution would be to provide a safe regulated supply, which is what we've traditionally done for most things, right? Um, right. You just have to look at alcohol prohibition, right? The, the, they stopped alcohol, especially in the United States, or tried to at least, uh, and all they got as a result of that was uh, increasing organized crime, <laughs> yeah. um, and then eventually a toxic supply of wood grain alcohol that was making people go blind and die. And so they said, well, maybe we should probably just regulate this, provide a safe place for people to use, and then we'll, you know, stop having all of these deaths. And then they also decided to tax it and make money off of it as well. Um, but we we really need to like be thinking ahead of the ahead of the curve on this. Um, the war on drugs has been just a massive failure. Um, it has not done anything positive in order to um, reduce the amount of overdoses that people are experiencing. Uh, drug availability, even during a pandemic, is still there, right? And so we need to actually look at a solution um, that has the potential to start helping people right now. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we need to start working on some of the other bigger issues, right? We need to continue to work on tackling poverty. We need to continue to work on tackling homelessness, um, all of those other intersecting factors that increase an individual's risk. Um, but a safe supply has been something that advocates have been calling for for at least four years now, uh, right. perhaps even longer. Um, and it's, it's a necess necessary imperative. It's going, it, it's, right now it's not as accessible as it should be in BC. Um, it's a new thing, so it's definitely taken some time to roll it out. Um, access is a big issue, especially for people who are not connected to teams, who don't have a regular doctor. Uh, and so in BC, we're pushing for demedicalized models of safe supply. Instead of having physicians as gatekeepers, right. if, a, if a nurse can help do an assessment and provide something to that individual at a consumption site that they could use, um, then that's win-win for everyone. Risk goes down, but also people aren't buying from the illicit market, right? Which takes away some of the power from that illicit market. Um, creates a safe competitor. Is there, now a lot of people, and I like, I try to f come at things from what the opposite side might be thinking. And when we talk about safe supply or legalizing cannabis, for example, it was like, everyone's going to do it. We're all going to be like running around with joints in our mouths or whatever. And people think that safe supply is going to increase the issue of addiction. Is there evidence to show the opposite of that, that maybe safe supply is actually decreases the, um, problems such of addiction a, such a tired old <laughs> rhetoric right like do this and it'll encourage them to do more like mm -hmm. look at sex education uh you know talk to the kids about it in a non-punitive non-fear-mongering way and you're encouraging them to have sex like no they're they're already having sex that's why there are stis in these like grade schools that's why there's young pregnancies uh, it doesn't create that problem. Um, we saw that with cannabis. Like, like you said, everybody thought that, or not everybody, but a lot right. of people were quite concerned that the there posers. was just going to be this yeah. sharp rise in people who, who use cannabis. And then it turns out the world didn't end the day that cannabis became legal. Uh, the you know parks weren't on fire and there wasn't joints being handed out at the daycares. But that was like the fear that everybody had. And it's, it is just a really tired old argument that 
um, providing someone with safety uh, will increase their risk or increase the likelihood. We saw that with, uh, with Housing First, right? Medicine Hat knows about this. When right. Housing First was first introduced, there was a whole rabble of people that were like, this is going to increase the number of homeless people that we have in the city because if you offer free housing, they'll all come to you. And then it was like, oh, no, wait, that's a ridiculous statement because nobody is going to be like, no, no person experiencing homelessness in Mississauga, Ontario is going to be like, you see the deal they got in Medicine Hat? Right. I'm there. I remember a guy, this is a little off talk, but I, uh, sorry, Jeremy. I remember a guy, a friend of mine that had a, like a meme up which showed like a full refrigerator and an empty refrigerator. And under the full one, it was like guy on welfare. And under the full refrigerator, it was guy that works 40 hours a week. And I was like, okay, so if that's true, how come you don't just uh, quit your job and go on welfare? <laughs> He's just like, uh, uh, I'm like, so you're saying that maybe like, even though welfare exists, you're you're still interested in not being on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, we see that argument uh, applied to the Serb, right? We saw Stephen Harper was like my former boss. Even your your former boss, even <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's like you're encouraging people to not. No, people people do want to work and they want to go back to their jobs. We're just like providing them with an opportunity to not go bankrupt during a pandemic. We saw we see that with food banks. You hear people all the time say that food banks are a crutch and it's not a motivator to, and it's just ridiculous. It's a way of victim blaming people who are experiencing food insecurity or poverty or any other factor that would bring them to a food bank. I, I think we all agree here that the arguments against harm reduction are totally bogus and have been debunked extensively. Why do you think they have this staying power that people still cling to this notion that we're enabling drug users, um, that, you know, and, and this especially irks me, this notion that harm reduction advocates aren't looking at the whole picture and they need to support treatment and all that, because obviously they do. But, but why, why, why do these arguments persist? Oh, there's so many reasons. Um, let's, let's start off first with the fact that the recovery industry is highly profitable. Um, and, and there are deeply entrenched systems all across our country, all across North America and the rest of the world, uh, where people profit off of treatment facilities, where they profit off of opioid cleanse kits online. Um, and, and so people, and they're people who have a lot of respect and a lot of clout. And, and so they'll continue to, to push this um, dialogue the, this concept that the only marker for success is abstinence and if you're not able to abstain then you're a failure that's a really shitty way of looking at people uh, we're far more complex beings than that um, but it also is something that a lot of people have been indoctrinated into like there's folks who uh, have done really well through abstinence-based programs and they have been told that if they slip up, if they use again, it's going to lead to catastrophic outcomes. And a lot of them need to hold on to that belief in order to prevent them from using again. Um, we don't abide to that kind of mantra when we're talking to people. Uh, we use a person-centered approach. What are your priorities? What do you need? 
someone comes in and they're using drugs and what they really need help with is getting access to a safe place to sleep overnight. So we help them deal with that and they continue to feel a little bit better, get a little bit more stability in their lives and they can still have that self-determination. They make the choices, right? And we don't affix any kind of judgments to it. Um, but that's really hard for some people to swallow. That's not, uh, we're, we kind of have a very uh, black and white approach to addictions care. Um, and, and a lot of our system has been built off of that. So acknowledging that that's not effective would also mean tearing down a lot of structures that already exist. I got to say, it sounds really a lot like disaster capitalism, right? Knowing that there's something, you know, whether it's making a bunch of money off of a, a tsunami or a hurricane or, or climate change or anything else, it's the same thing. It, 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 instead of thinking about how can we fix this problem or, or, or deal with the actual issue head on, it's how can we make money off of it? And it's a great time to transition into our current provincial government and associate minister Jason Lewan because I think maybe that's been really the just like it is in any other sector in this province lately I think the goal really is just privatization of anything they can uh, they talked about uh, adding a thousand or more beds for recovery but these were all private facility beds um, these kinds of things is it is it maybe that simple for these guys that it's just how can we make money off of this never ending supply of drug users? Well, I don't know if it's entirely like I, I try to also avoid black and white judgments. There's a lot of other motives behind um, our, your, you know, the Alberta's current uh, stance on substance use. And, and some of it is about moralizing and and you know dog whistling to your base who who really doesn't like harm reduction who really doesn't like people with addictions um, and it's also you know I think when it comes to the recovery mantra the problem that I have is not with recovery institutions per se if it's evidence based and it supports people and it's accessible uh, and it's what that person wants. I want to support them just like any other harm reduction worker. I want to support them to get into that program and I want to make sure that they are supported all the way through it. Um, if it's coercive, if there's, you know, if it goes against evidence, that's of course a bigger issue. But the, but the big problem is that the government is doing this all or nothing approach. They're saying we're investing in recovery instead of harm reduction. And it's not an either or. Uh, just like in harm reduction, we never say that supervised consumption services are this tried and true thing that's going to resolve all overdose, all homelessness, all crime. It's not a panacea to things. It's one piece of a continuum and you need all of those pieces all the way along. No matter where someone is in their life, they have somewhere they can go that meets their needs. And instead, uh, now we're seeing this uh, weaponizing of recovery, where, where, where the politicians, where Jason Luan is saying, uh, instead of the failed NDP drug sites, we're doing this. And so he's affixed a political label to, he's affixed a partisan label to supervised consumption services. They willfully don't even call them supervised consumption right. services, right? And so drug you can sites. see, like, how, how could you even imagine that that report would have been unbiased? when you look at the way that they were talking about the services going into that. We're gonna do a report on the failed NDP drug sites. 
why do the fucking report? Like right. you just said it right there. Why would you even do the report then? Well, you know, guys, we looked at it. We, we went at it from an, um, an objective angle. And uh, this is what we came up with. Turns out all the experts about harm reduction and health and safety are wrong. And uh, we have the review to prove it. I mean, they are the most mad lib fucking government I have ever seen. Like you can just remove the names or the sector or the industry or the people that we're talking about and just insert anything. It's always the same. It's always the same with them. And it's about reviews. Oh, we did. We looked at it. Yeah, it told us everything we we wanted to hear. And this is, but now we have the proof. Look, it's proof. I've said this before, but there's nothing this government loves more than creating phony panels to manufacture consent for the policies that they were open in the election that they wanted to implement. Yeah, like Google confirmation bias. They walked around right. neighborhoods and were like, hello, sir. Can you tell me how bad this consumption site has made things? Really, that's interesting. Hey, guys, like we've got one. Someone yeah. here, you know, and that now reports tell us that this place is terrible. Uh, look at these restaurant reviews. You know, like they, they use so many flawed metrics in that report uh, in order to create this slant against supervised consumption services that it just flies in the face of any scientific method. And it was immediately debunked from every different angle. There was criminologists who were breaking down things. There was physicians who were breaking down the medical reports. Uh, and then right from the get-go, we were, we were kicking and screaming and saying like, this is a panel that's been told they're not allowed to review the merits of harm reduction or to consider the merits of harm reduction while they're determining the socioeconomic impacts of supervised consumption. So you put together a panel and you tell them to review a topic, but not to review any of the merits of that topic. What do you think you're gonna get as a final result? A bunch Just of people this. whining about their property values. Yeah, there's a there was parts in there, like, listen, I did my homework for today. Hopefully it's still boy. up. Um, <laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> There's hey, parts in this report shit. where <laughs> they say, uh, the royal they, uh, being these, these informants, these participants in the review, where, where they've had to put razor blades under door handles to deter people who use drugs from breaking right. into their sheds. That's and absolutely psychopathic. I also and they hear... published that statement in the report yeah as an argument against consumption service. Like, call the cops on the guy who's putting razor blades on doorknobs. They had to. That, yeah. That's, that's a remarkable. And first of all, there's no admission. goddamn way that they had to do that. They did it because they figured, oh, man, I'm going to be over. Like, it, it's like Rick Bell who uh, re referred to the, the meth heads as a zombie apocalypse, basically, right? Like, we're being overran by these people. Well, fuck, if you read something and tells you that you're going to have a, like a quote unquote infestation of addicts or whatever, like you're going to goddamn, if that's what you buy into, well, no shit you're putting razor blades on your, I'm surprised you didn't booby trap your whole property because you're fed this idea that you're going to be overran by this wave. 
it seems to me that this is, it's, it's sort of, um, it's kind of like the way we look at poor people, right? Like it, it, this, this separation, it's this classness. And, and if we, when we talk about people that are using drugs, we tend to just assume that they're all lazy, poor people that didn't, that aren't succeeding in this wondrous system that we have. And I mean, you said you worked on the rigs. I bet you saw some drug use from people that had the money to uh, afford a place to live and such, right? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, like if, like if you really want to, if you want to see the truth behind how the current government feels about people who use drugs and supervised consumption services, then all you have to do is look at their decision to cancel the virtual OPS in the very last second. The entire you know, mindset going forward has been that they don't like these services because they create quote unquote socioeconomic impacts, social disorder, uh, all of these things that they're making wild claims about. The virtual overdose prevention service was designed to keep people in their homes, to not have people leaving and going to sites. It addresses folks who have a place to be but are still at risk of overdose, and the government still canceled it. So it can't be about perceived socioeconomic impacts when they cancel a service that would have just helped people and posed no socioeconomic impacts. How do you change the minds? Because I think that there obviously is a major issue with perception here through no fault of your own, but how do you change the minds of people who think that their property value trumps the lives of addicts? Well, that is the, that is the age old question, isn't it? If we, if we knew the answer on how to uh, make everybody care about all people, regardless of circumstances, we would be in a very happy and probably rose-colored world. Um, you have to sometimes talk to them about studies that show tax dollars are saved because of consumption services. You have to sometimes sit and speak with them and find out where their fear is coming from. I've met a lot of people who oppose these services and then I find out that they themselves used to use drugs and are now in sobriety and it challenges their whole mindset and it's really scary for them, right? I've met people who have had family members who use drugs and they've had really bad experiences and they've you know, transferred that over, they've projected that over onto other people. And so you have to spend a lot of time doing one-to-one -one conversations. I've had a lot of great conversations with people in Alberta and in BC that started off very oppositional. And, and because we tried to work with each other, there was a shift. And uh, this is among all of the previous years, this year in particular, uh, has really been forcing people to challenge some of those really like deep-seated notions. And, and unfortunately, there's been a lot of crisis this year, but there's also been a lot of opportunity for change. Uh, and so we need to, keep, need to keep trying, even if it feels bleak, even if there's someone who just like vehemently opposes these services, you have to keep trying and you have to keep working different angles. So can you tell us a bit more about some of these opportunities for change? So in March, I took a leave of absence from my regular full-time job and I went and worked in the homeless encampments in Victoria. And I worked like 
45 consecutive days and there was a lot of really bad things that happened during that time people didn't have access to soap and water for seven days they didn't have showers for 17 this is during a pandemic they didn't have showers for 17 days there was overdose deaths there was it was a really really uh difficult time especially for the people who were actually living it right it, it's not about me but we rallied together and we were able to get 350 people uh, into hotels in Victoria in rapid succession. And that's something that people have been trying to do for a really long time. We saw the rollout of Safe Supply come out because of the dual pandemic. We've been telling people for years that Safe Supply is a proven effective strategy to mitigate overdoses, but it took a pandemic on top of an overdose crisis in order for them to roll it out. And so we have to capitalize on those opportunities and we have to hold on tight to those wins. So when COVID's no longer a thing, we can right. keep building on our successes. Because we know our opponents are also trying to capitalize. Well, this is on, why. Oh yeah. There's been so many things, you know, snuck in uh, under the vein of right. public health, right? Like I talk about how it was great getting people into hotels. It was also really shitty how they did it. Right. Like they didn't do it through a helping hand health focus. They did it through a law enforcement focus. And so people were displaced and some people slipped through the cracks and some so people were they were like were scooped up and taken to a hotel? No, they, they were, people got in and it was, it tried to be supportive, but they didn't have the, the, the right services in place. And some people died during the transition, like people who are at risk of overdose. Right. And then you put them in a hotel room where there's nobody to be there with them and support them and, and catch them if they overdose. Um, so the process was really, really shitty at times. And in this type of work process is almost as important as outcomes. How you get there is almost as important as what you get to in the end. Um, because if you're coercive, if you're oppressive, uh, you just create more traumas and, and continue to push people down the, the ladder. So, you know, you, it's been, it's been a difficult year, but there's also a lot of opportunity for us to change things for the better. Well, and that's really key with COVID in a lot of ways, right? Like I think right now, as you look at sort of who's behind this race back to normalcy and why they want us to get back to normal so fast and let's have NHL and all this shit going on and go back to what we were doing. You know, I think part of it is a lot of people are realizing with COVID that like, and I've said this a million times, your safety is my safety. Your health is my health. And like, we we're not separate from people who struggle with addiction. They, we need them to be healthy for our own health. Like, again, if you want to be selfish about it and that's fine. Selfishness is a survival technique in a lot of ways in a lot for a lot of things you have to take care of yourself. So if you really want to focus on your own safety, well, then you want to make sure that your neighbor is safe and that your neighbor is healthy. Now, we talk about what kind of opportunities or what, how we might change some minds. Is it maybe just as simple as like, we need a government to put the policies in place and show, so people can just see how it, the same way, like, let's say cannabis, right? Everybody, or the people that were opposing was like, it's going to be, you know, skies falling. Everyone's going to be running around smoking joints. It's going to be awful. We're all going to die in a D, in a high driving accident. These kinds of things. A year and a, a couple years later, we can um, ask those same people. And a lot of them might be like, yeah, okay. It's not near as bad as I thought. And we have socially acceptable uh, addictions, right? Like it's, it's, there's nothing 
there's nothing stigmatic or embarrassing about telling people that you're a recovering alcoholic or that you quit smoking cigarettes or you're giving up coffee or any of these things. So is it not just a matter of if we had them weren't illegal and weren't enforced by law and all and weren't wouldn't that change the mind so don't do we not just make the change first and then change the minds later long-winded question yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna try and pull pull on a couple of threads of that um so first i'll say uh people not everybody who who uses a substance or uses a drug has an addiction uh and a lot of the folks that we see who are using drugs they are not necessarily like quote unquote addicted to that substance. Even there's a difference between physical dependency and addiction and people use drugs for all kinds of reasons as well. Sometimes they just use it because they enjoy it and that's perfectly fine. A lot of our deep seated stigmas and perceptions come from the criminalization of drugs, right? Like everybody had the dare program, uh, come to their school. And I remember sitting there in middle school and this officer was there and he was like, what's the biggest gang in the world? Can anyone tell us? And everybody's like, it's the Yakuza, it's the Hells Angels. And then he's like, wrong, it's the police. And it was like this super cool moment where he was like talking about how the police were the biggest worldwide gang. And then he's like, shows an egg and he's like, this is your brain. And then he scrambles it and he's like, this is your brain on drugs. Like the D.A.R.E. program was released uh, and it targeted people who are now in the age category of 30 to 39. And the number one cause of death for Canadians aged 30 to 39 is overdose. So it's clearly not an effective strategy to use scare tactics, but it's all built off of our laws and our policies that, that tell us drug use is bad. It's a, the TV shows, cops, where people are uh, you know, getting chased down for small possession. When we applaud a minor bust that the police do and then realize that that took away a regular supply and all of a sudden an even more concentrated dose of fentanyl hits the street and people die. There's no follow-up story for that. So yeah, it would really help for sure to, to eliminate some of the stigma to, to de- decriminalize people who use substances. But on the, on the flip side of that, people who drink alcohol still do experience stigma. And so the last thread on, on your long question there is I wanted to just make sure that I, people knew that uh, we shouldn't be minimizing uh, the experience or the addictions of, of, of other folks because uh, people who drink alcohol and, and have a, an addiction to alcohol certainly do still experience some, some forms of stigma. Um, stigma knows no bounds. There's, there's all kinds of ways that people are judged because of their substance use. No disrespect at all, and I didn't. I did not mean to, or wasn't looking to sort of belittle the or, or lessen their their addiction. I just sort of was coming from it with the, you know, it's we we seem to accept that addiction a little bit more as a society that it's something that occurs well, we to people, and it doesn't nec- more, it doesn't right? necessarily make you a bad person if you became addicted to alcohol where it seems to me that like anyone that has a a meth addiction like gets big in medicine hat or as for an opioid addiction especially that you're just you're just a bad person who is weak and made made shitty choices and i just don't hear that same um concept when it comes to like a smoker or a drinker or or that kind of thing i guess yeah, I mean, but we've even we've even romanticized some substances over others, right? Like mm-hmm. James Bond looks really fucking cool when he's having a martini, right? Yeah. But you don't see Daniel Craig putting a needle in his arm during a Bond episode. 
right? And, and so we entrench these beliefs that it's super cool to drink, but if you do drugs, then it's because you're one type of person. And that's not true. There's people who use methamphetamines and there's people who use opioids and, and heroin uh, who have beautiful homes and jobs and money and a family. Um, we see people who are homeless and experiencing poverty more uh, because they don't have walls to hide behind while they're using. Right. Um, right. And they're, they're figuratively and literally exposed. And so we just make that association so much quicker. Um, but really drug use, it's cuts a clean spot through every demographic and every did, population. Did I not read on the change, the face you of addiction, um, Twitter account, something about 80% of overdoses occur in the home. Yeah, 80% of, around 80% of overdoses occur inside a home. Um, and, you know, like one of the highest demographics of people who are overdosing are single men who work in trades or construction. And so services need to be targeted for them as well because they're not going to go to a consumption site, right? Like they, they're not going to feel comfortable walking to a low barrier, low threshold service in the inner city uh, because of stigma, because they don't want to be outed to their community. Uh, and so that's what those programs like the virtual OPS were meant to meant to address. It was supposed to be an option for someone to stay in their home and use the app. And if they are experiencing an overdose, help will come right away. Unfortunately, uh, you have to when you're putting out public health programs, uh, you are always trying to be mindful of populations that are disproportionately impacted by an issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so just because 80 percent occurred in the homes, uh, you have to actually look at like the per capita difference, right? And so if that 20% is homeless, but if only 2% of the whole population is homeless, that 20% means if you're homeless, you're way more likely to die of overdose than if you right. have a home, right? right? And so I've seen a lot of people make that argument. Why do we have consumption sites if 80% of people are dying in their homes? We do because we aim our public health in interventions at populations that are disproportionately impacted by these types of issues. We also want to address the broader population, but we need to look out for the folks that are way more at risk. You know, like Canada's indigenous population, um, I read a statistic where uh, they, they make up 4% 4, 4 of our population in Canada, but their likelihood of overdosing, they, they make up a considerable amount of overdoses in wow. our country. And, and a whole host of other factors that, you know, even the life expectancy is considerably lower. So we have to target, target programs and services to help meet the needs of people who are so disproportionately impacted. I, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about the difference in attitude there might be towards uh, um, harm reduction in uh, on Vancouver Island, as opposed to uh, in a town like Medicine Hat, where you know, the opposition to the supervised consumption site was quite rampant. Yeah, rampant. And the flames of it were fueled by local politicians. I would imagine on Vancouver Island, attitudes are very different. I perceived that things would be a lot different going to Vancouver Island. I perceived that things would be a lot more progressive uh, going to Victoria. Uh, I was I'm from the island. I was born and raised in Nanaimo, which is a, a short drive away from Victoria. And I was really shocked because there are still a lot of those rhetoric-based 
moralizing attitudes towards people who use drugs here on the island as well. It is everywhere. Um, it comes out in different forms, right? It comes out in different ways um, that, that would surprise you. But a lot of the progress, a lot of the progressiveness of British Columbia was born out of need. They, in, in the downtown east side, when supervised consumption services were first implemented, they were implemented because of an alarming spike in HIV cases among people who were injecting drugs. That was the first intent of supervised consumption services was to prevent the spread of HIV and other bloodborne pathogens like hepatitis C. Uh, so they, and they had a huge increase in that one particular area. So they had to respond to it. The same with the overdose crisis, uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver has been hit the hardest uh, by the overdose crisis and they were hit the first. And so they had to make these changes and they had to move and act and look at outside the box solutions um, because there was more of an impetus. I see people all the time who are like, well, the death rate isn't that high in Medicine Hat. Well, it shouldn't be, right? And because it's not just about raw numbers of overdose deaths, it's about keeping people safe. It's about meeting their needs. It's about connecting them to services and healthcare. It's about all of these other things that harm reduction and supervised consumption services do. It's not just about raw numbers. And we shouldn't wait for the crisis to get really bad before we implement these services. We should be implementing an upstream approach. You know, I hear people all the time. They're like, we need to stop pulling people out of the river and find out why they're falling in to begin with. And that's, that's actually not true. Someone needs to stay at the bottom of the river and keep pulling people out while we right. figure out why they're falling in the goddamn river to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so the, there, there is still those really um, negative attitudes here in, in Vancouver Island, here in British Columbia. We certainly, I would say, have more exposure to, to some of the issues. And so the, the language is different um, and the services have evolved quicker. But this is you know, this these are services that need to be implemented across Canada uh, because the trend usually starts here in British Columbia uh, and then it bleeds out to the rest of the country. I would imagine the BC government's approach to harm reduction is quite different from the current government in Alberta. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the differences from their approaches and what issues there might be with the attitude in BC coming from the government? Yeah, I mean, every every government needs to make more change. Every like we we can't just say that one government's approach is is perfect. Um, but in in BC, we're not at the stage where we're still humming and hawing about the potential benefits and detriments of supervised consumption services. That's done. We've checked that box. We support these services. They have to be here. They keep people alive. We're moving on to that. Um, but you know, there still is. Uh, issues that that we experience, including you know uh, even just looking at the disparate um, responses to COVID compared to the responses to overdose. Right, in May of 2020, we lost 170 people in BC to overdose, and in all of 2020, we've lost 167 people to COVID. But you see, with COVID, we get weekly updates on stats reporting. We get billions put into protective measures helping keep people at home safe, supported. We don't see that same kind of response and that level of urgency, even though according to the statistics, 
you're four times more likely in BC right now to die of an overdose than you are of COVID. Obviously the difference there is that like people, people realize that, you know, Oh, COVID can affect everyone. COVID can affect everyone. Whereas that does nothing for the stake to change the stigma of you're a shitty person who makes shitty choices. If you do, dangerous drugs on the street i mean it's yeah, just look at the messaging around you wouldn't even be on the street had you not made shitty choices this is the mindset right like we this is why i say and you talked about pulling people out of the river this is why it's like we have to make sure that we save lives I and mean, that's the easy thing like we're not if people are dying stop letting them die so let's put the band-aids on that we need let's have supervised consumption let's talk about safe supply let's get this shit dealt with but on the on the flip side we do need to figure out how to shut the faucet off to turn the waterfall off or whatever this analogy is we're using and we have to figure out a way to not not stop having people addicted to drugs show up but stop putting them in scenarios where it's more likely that they're going to be in trouble from it because they don't have a home or they don't have the money to to buy the things that they need and it we need some serious systemic changes on how we just treat everyone's right to be alive what essentials do you are you entitled to have provided for you and this would to me help slow the issue of people becoming addicted to a substance that's really dangerous and doing it in your Tim Horton's bathroom or whatever that that guy that in medicine hat was so pissed off about. Well, look at the difference in messaging and I'll go back to actually answer Jeremy's question in just a second here. Cause I realized there was another half to that question that I never got to, but uh, like, it, wouldn't it be great with the overdose crisis? If you heard from all of our public health officials, we're all in this together. We have <laughs> to do our part to keep everyone safe. That's what we hear about COVID. Right. Stay at home. You're doing so great. The romanticizing of, of, of self-quarantining has been so huge and so apparently a class issue, right? Because I spent my entire first part of the COVID crisis working with people who didn't have a home, who were sleeping in tents in a park, uh, and then hearing, you know, people bang their pots and pans at 7 p.m. and it's like, fuck off. <laughs> do something more to advocate for change so that we don't end up in a situation like this again. And wouldn't it be great if that level of commitment and pulling together was born out of the overdose crisis instead of the, instead of the pandemic? But it's not, because it's about this really deep entrenched stigma that we have of people who use drugs. And to be perfectly honest, Jeremy, about your question, the second half was, what's the difference between BC and Alberta? Uh, the difference is that in Alberta, it really looks like there is just a blatant attempt to dismantle everything that can possibly be attributed to the NDP. Whether it was good, bad, regardless, if it was something that they, you've heard MLAs at, at the ledge who have said things like, we are not going to support something that was put forward by the NDP. Yep. And, and instead, at least in British Columbia, we've acknowledged that the overdose crisis is severe and that people are dying and that we, we can get past that and find out that we need to find solutions in a collaborative way. I mean, your far right party is the liberals. So, I mean, this is like, you, they don't quite have the same uh, unabashedness that maybe the conservative parties in this province tend to have. But the UCP's attitude toward addiction and whatnot has been like, it's been just nothing short of deplorable since 
for no matter when they open their mouth. And I, it really doesn't matter why they are like this. The fact is, is it's going to cost lives, right? Yeah. I mean, I really want to like, I want to make sure that, that Jason Luan's okay. Like, I feel like maybe he got assigned a portfolio that was a little bit out of his depth. And I hear him talk sometimes and I don't feel like he's always the driving force behind some of these decisions. I think that he's towing the party line. He's a social worker. He used to work it with people who use substances. Um, but he really, you know, it just doesn't feel like he has a great understanding of the topic uh, in order to be able to, to manage such a portfolio. Um, and, and I don't think that he's willfully causing harms. I just don't think that he understands whatsoever. I think he's well, out of his depth. Well, we know that Jason Kenny runs a very tight shit and expects the utmost loyalty from his cabinet ministers. So Luan could have gone into this with the absolute best intentions, but at the end of the day, it's, it's Kenny's party and he enforces his will with an iron fist. Whether he had the right intentions or not, sorry, he is obviously willing to sell that off for whatever, right? Like, it doesn't matter if he was like, oh, I'm going to make a difference. Well, I look mean, at, like, his comment about about evidence around harm reduction. Like, and he sent out that tweet saying that he thinks that Big Pharma is in collusion with harm reduction and funded all of the studies. He obviously, like, someone obviously whispered that in his ear, and he was like, money, I'm going to send this tweet out. And yeah. then, and then he was just blasted for it. Like he, he just doesn't, uh, he doesn't come from a place of, of very good comprehension of the subject matter. Or well, firm convictions. Or right? firm convictions. Yeah. Or any interest in listening to health experts. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I think that transcends the entire, right. Uh, of the entire approach. Uh, it's, it's very hard if you disagree to have a legitimate discourse um, with with someone on the other side, um, they don't they don't create a lot of opportunities for dialogue or uh, creating mutual understandings. Right now, we gotta we have to unfortunately wrap up today because we're uh, we're at our time here. But I wanted to ask you um, before we let you go, and I know it's going to be a broad question, and you uh, are maybe lucky enough to not be here right now, but. What do Albertans, um, like Kim Porter, for example, uh, a mutual friend of all of ours, um, whose son um, died of an accidental opioid overdose years ago and has been advocating um, for drug addiction ever since. Um, she uh, supplied a few of the questions that we asked today. She's such a great, what, what can she do other than bang her head against the wall during this time that we have a government that does not give a shit about the people that she's trying to help. What can we do to help save lives in the meantime? Well, you know, I, I, I Kim and I go way back. She's someone that I, I care about quite a bit. Um, and I can only imagine how frustrating it has been, especially still being in Medicine Hat and trying to continue um, pushing forward and feeling like you're not being heard. 
um, but people are hearing her. And so I, I hope that she listens to this podcast and knows that the work that she's doing is more than banging her head against a wall. The work that she's doing has, um, has been helping and it has been reaching people. Um, this is not an easy thing to hear, um, but what I've learned, especially during the COVID crisis, kind of coming to a head with overdose, is that uh, sometimes we, the people, cannot wait for governments and institutions to make the changes that are necessary. Um, some of the first uh, harm reduction, so the first needle exchange programs, uh, the first supervised consumption services, those were all born out of activism and drug user uh, activism and people taking chances, um, taking the Harper government to the Supreme Court. And, and we've seen that all the way into um, safe supply now. Uh, there was just a protest um, last week in, in the downtown east side uh, where the drug user liberation front was handing out um, single servings of cocaine and opium to people uh, because safe supply wasn't um, being accessed by as many people it wasn't as accessible as it should have been so they did that as a means of pushing the government I'm not telling people to get <laughs> <laughs> my oh, eyes, so my my eyebrows went up when you said that. Uh, I was like, like, oh, I'm yeah. volunteering for this program. And, and, and by the way, the uh, <laughs> what, what did you say the name of that group was? The Drug User Liberation Front. Yeah, the Drug User Liberation Front sounds fucking. Cool. That's um, among the yeah. greatest names for an organization <laughs> yeah. I've ever heard. I, I, ever. Like, I, I, I want to join. I'll, I'll buy a gun. We don't have that level of activism in Alberta. It's quite a bit more common in British Columbia to see these groups out there, the Alliance Against uh, Displacement, um, Poverty Kills. Uh, there's a lot of really like grassroots initiatives um, out there in British Columbia that have been pushing the envelope on, on getting laws and policies changed. Um, yeah, but we got way more fuck Trudeau bumper stickers than you. Yeah, your your <laughs> activism seems to be directed towards Wexit, um, which is unfortunate. Which, by the way, we support. Absolutely. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah, this is a Wexit podcast. Yeah, th yeah that was secretly, oh secretly. We, we're actually going to force BC to switch places. In fact, why do you get the mountains? It's bullshit. Yeah. Vancouver Island will just be on the Rockies. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we're switch Banff and Nanaimo. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Um, but you know, like we need to, we need to continue at all levels of advocacy. Um, whether it's um, you know writing letters to our decision makers from the municipal level, provincial level. Um, sometimes it means about pushing um, the federal government to to step in and make more changes and to and to force a little bit more progress. Um, but you're gonna be, it's gonna be difficult as long as there's a party in power um, who completely opposes these services uh, and is willing to you know, use ad hominem attacks um, just because you support uh, saving people's lives. Um, so, you know, Alberta's, it's, they still have like their, their work cut out for them uh, in order to make these changes but they are something that need to happen. And, uh, and so please keep up the fight. Everybody who's out there who is, is pushing for change, who's pushing to support people instead of punishing them, um, then, then keep doing what you're doing because every little bit counts. 
Absolutely. That is a fantastic thing to end on. I think that you couldn't have said it any better. Um, just want to let our, get our listeners follow Corey on Twitter. We're going to put a bunch of stuff in the show notes, follow the uh, change the face of addiction account on Twitter. Keep, supporting these guys um help them get the word out help them change the stigmas about all of these things it's it's all we can do right now especially under the government that we have and if we care about each other these are the kinds of things that we need to do Corey, i just want to thank you immensely for coming on the program especially uh from your horribly horrible view that you have out there on vancouver island you must be missing medicine hats so much and the brooks area but we yeah, want to think i mean yeah no there's <laughs> yeah 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 never mind anyway we'll just move there's, on. there's a nice lake in brooks yeah that's that's right is that's right so anyway but anyway thank you so much for coming on the program um to our listeners if you uh want to help support what we're doing here uh head on over to our patreon account and consider becoming a patron um any little bit goes towards the show and we really appreciate anything you guys can offer Corey, my friend we reserve the right with all our guests to bring you back and talk more about this. So uh, don't be a stranger and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Jeremy, say goodbye, my friend. Keep fighting the good fight, Corey. And thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Nice talking to you again. Here, Corey. Always a pleasure. All right, guys. Bye, take care. Peace. Thanks for coming. Hey folks, this is the time in the show where we give thanks to those patrons who go way above and beyond for our show. So to Chris and to Ray, you guys are unbelievable. Thank you so much for your support. We'll see you guys again next week. Take care, everyone.